Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. Well, first of all, I wanted to give a nice shout-out to all the new listeners that uh, we picked up. I've noticed an increase in the subscriber count, and we've also been featured on uh, the iTunes Music Store under the podcast section under the Science section. Uh, So we are on that first page there, and uh, like I said, I've noticed the subscriber count go up a little bit, and I'm assuming we've got some new listeners, so I just wanted to say hello to everybody out there who's just picked up the show and has just started listening to the show. The next thing I wanted to do is say a quick hello to all of those forum lurkers out there. Now, one thing that I've noticed over the last few weeks as I've been kind of watching the site is I noticed that the actual um, active members and the new registered members on the forum continues to go up on a daily basis, which is very exciting, and I love to see that. Uh, The other thing that I see is on a regular basis, there's a lot of people that come to the forums that don't ever post or don't ever, you know, say anything in there. So I just wanted to say hello to all of you people out there that are forum lurkers. And, you know, we've got a really excellent bunch of people in there. So even if it's just to pop in and say, hi, you know, I'm a lurker here and I just wanted to say hi for a second, go ahead and do that. You'll find that uh, it's a, a great community full of a bunch of great people that are very, very helpful Uh, And it's just excellent to, you know, just jump in there and just say hello. So I'll leave it at that. Well, speaking of the forums, if if any of you guys that are listening are actually active members in the forums, you're going to know that I had a very interesting week. And uh, it has taken up quite a bit of my time. Uh, My my lab has given birth to seven puppies. Uh, We were expecting five, and we ended up getting surprised and got seven. And... um, We actually had four black ones and three yellow ones. It's been an exciting and very busy past couple days. So uh, this show uh, is actually not going to be done by me. Uh, I have a a special show for you. This is a show that's going to be done by Jake Adams. Many of you may remember Jake Adams had popped into the show a couple times before and did a little introduction to this a couple weeks back. Now, now what this topic is is basically uh, some discussions uh, about corals and zooxanthellae. So, you know, I just wanted to uh, let everybody know this is kind of an advanced topic. He's going to get into a lot of details, uh, a lot of real, you know, some scientific terms, this, that, and the other thing. It is very educational. Uh, it's, it's, you know, about 30 minutes long. It's a real good show topic, and I think it's some good stuff for anybody that's actually keeping corals in their tank. So, like I said, it's an advanced topic, uh, so you know, make sure you have time to actually sit down and pay attention to what's being said. This isn't one of those shows that you're probably going to want to listen to just as background noise, or you know, you probably won't get a whole lot of out of it because there's a lot of good information in here. So, again, this show is done by uh, this segment uh, was done by Jake Adams. Uh, more information about him and some of the stuff he works on can be found at Coralite.com. I'll have a link to that into the show notes as he's going to reference that a few times with the stuff he's doing. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, let Jake take over from here. Hi, this is Jake Adams, and welcome to a special edition of the Talking Reef podcast. This In this episode, I will be talking to you about Zuzanthelli in two parts. In part one, I will give you a brief introduction about Zuzanthelli and Zuzanthelli biology and how this relates to uh, the corals we keep in our aquariums. And in part two, I have uh, an interesting 
interview with Dr. Dan Thornhill from the University of Georgia in Athens. The beginning part of this episode, part one, uh, can be found in transcribed form on my website, uh, coralite.net. I've recently updated a lot of the pages on there, so um, if you haven't looked around in a while, feel free to do that. That's uh, C-O-R-A-L-I-T-E dot net, and uh, I will also include several links um, that I mention in the introduction of the segment. Okay, so let's get started. Zooxanthellae is a group of unicellular algae, which are paramount in providing a food source for important reef-building corals. Most Zooxanthellae are classified as dinoflagellates, but some groups are actually chrysophytes or diatoms, which are distinct from dinoflagellates. Zooxanthellae is not a taxonomic term as much as a descriptive term, which means golden brown animal. The genus that is of most importance to corals is Symbiodinium, which is characterized by a round or ellipsoidal shape which measures 2 to 17 microns across. In its pelagic form, dinoflagellate cells have two flagelli for motility, but when they live symbiotically, they do not develop these flagelli. Zooxanthellae can be found in a wide range of symbiotic associations, and they can be found living either with sponge, flatworms, clams, anemones, jellyfish, and sea squirts. Uh, Zooxanthellae can be intracellular, growing within the cells, such as in corals, or they can be extracellular, growing outside the cells, such as in giant clams of the genus Tridaphna. In corals, zooxanthellae occur in a special vacuoles with up to seven zooxanthellae cells per vacuole. They occur in all cells of the endoderm, but they are concentrated in the cells which are exposed to the most light, such as the oral disc, the tentacles, and the cenozarch, which is the thin tissue covering the skeleton between polyps. The density of zooxanthellae can range from thousands to millions of cells per square centimeter. Corals which contain zooxanthellae are called symbiotic, autotrophic, or hermatypic. Now, oftentimes, these three terms get confused and lumped together, but there are some distinctions. Uh, symbiotic means that they have a mutual relationship with another organism. Autotrophic means that they can make their own food. And hermatypic means that they are reef-building corals. Most of the corals that aquarists will be familiar with fall under most of these categories. Some symbiotic invertebrates are called facultative autotrophs, which means that they can be found with or without zooxanthellae. Sometimes the association is seasonal, but even when being symbiotic is quote-unquote in season, symbiotic and non-symbiotic colonies can be found growing right next to each other. In these species, the contribution of zooxanthellae to the overall biomass is marginal, whereas in obligate symbiotic corals, such as Poslopora demicornis, the zooxanthellae can make up to 45 to 60 percent of the coral's biomass. For many years, coral zooxanthellae was considered to be a single species, um, Gymnodinium microadriaticum. In time, researchers came to distinguish several types of zooxanthellae through painstaking and time-consuming morphological examinations. 
Thanks to molecular analysis techniques, we now know that there are about 100 to 150 types of zooxanthellae, and most can be identified within a few days. The groups are broken down into clades that are designated by letter from A to G, although the clades A through D are the most frequently reported. It is important to note that although most corals contain a single dominant symbiont type, Corals can harbor several types of symbionts in one colony. The distribution of symbionts can vary either from season to season, or it can vary across the shape of a large individual colony, with different symbionts being concentrated either in the most exposed part of the coral colony, that is the part of the colony that gets the most light, or the least exposed part of the colony, which either gets the least amount of light or least flow, or both. Um, I could get into the specifics of zooxanthellae genetics and characteristics of different clades for you, but um, a recent article by Dana Riddle has already done a really good job of that. Um, Mr. Riddle also took the time to compile a very large database of symbiotic coral species and other organisms and the zooxanthellae types that they associate with. And... Um, I think this is a very useful list, and as we come to understand the subtle differences in how our corals behave based on the dominant zooxanthellae type, I believe that this list will grow and become more widely considered when grouping different coral species. Um, the uh, link to the article and that database can be found on the transcription of this um, part one of this segment on Coralite.net. Um, the only addition that I would like to make um, is about Mr. Riddle's description of clade D, which will also touch on some of the prevailing views about coral bleaching and how this pertains to zooxanthellae in general. So, coral bleaching is a phenomenon wherein, during periods of abnormally high temperatures and reduced water flow, corals expel their golden brown symbionts, and they appear either very pale or white. That's because you can see through the tissue down to the white skeleton. There has been a hypothesis put forward called the adaptive bleaching hypothesis, which suggests that during bleaching events, corals expel their symbionts in order to repopulate their tissues with new strains of symbiodinium, which may be more resistant to high temperature stress. This hypothesis was supported by the fact that following bleaching, the zooxanthellae type, which repopulates coral tissues, are often from clade D. Now, although it is true that this clade is more tolerant of high temperature, this endurance comes at a metabolic cost, and therefore, under normal environmental conditions, this clade contributes less nutrition to its host, and in general, the clade D symbionts will generally be succeeded by a reversion to the original symbiont type. Again, that section was with Jake Adams talking, giving an introduction to Zuzanthelli, and upcoming Coming next, the Talking Reef podcast is bringing you an interview done by Jake Adams with Dr. Thornhill. Uh, he's a researcher that does a lot of research with symbiotics and stuff like that. So uh, without me getting into it, I'll just let Jake go ahead and take over from here and uh, explain it and carry on with the interview. Hi, my name is Jake Adams, and I'm here with Dr. Dan Thornhill from the University of Georgia in Athens, and he is um, on staff at the Institute of Ecology here. Um, thanks for joining us, Dan. It's good to be here, Jake. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to ask you a couple questions about Zuzanthelli and some of the work that you do. Sounds good. Um, so do you want to start out by um, telling me 
um, what some of the work that you've done with Zuzantheli. Um, well, as your listeners now know, zoosanthellae are the symbionts that associate with corals um, in a mutualistic symbiosis. And a lot of my work centers on uh, the adaptive bleaching hypothesis and climate change and how it relates to coral reefs. So what exactly is the uh, adaptive bleaching hypothesis? Well, so when corals bleach, um, usually during high temperature events or some other stressor, but typically temperature and high light, um, they lose their symbionts. These, these zoosanthellae either actively depart or they're expelled by their host. We're not really sure which at this point. And as a result, you can see right through the, the very thin tissues of the corals down to the skeleton. The coral looks white or bleached. And this was pretty universally thought to be a very bad phenomenon, um, very, very detrimental to the coral. But in the early 90s, there were two scientists, um, Dr. Robert Budemeyer and Dr. Daphne Fountain, who proposed an alternative explanation for what was going on. And they suggested that um, there was a huge diversity of zoosanthellae, uh, which we commonly call symbiodinium, out there. And that this, there might be some symbiodinium or some zoosanthellae that are more temperature tolerant than others. And by corals bleaching, it might be an opportunity for them to acquire a new symbiont type that's better adapted uh, to the, the new temperature regime or new climatic regime. And that might give them an opportunity to survive future bleaching events. So how does your work relate to the adaptive bleaching hypothesis? Well, the adaptive bleaching hypothesis has really been great for our field because it's, uh, it's motivated a lot of researchers to study this problem and try to, try, try to get an idea of whether or not this is actually occurring. And so that's kind of where my own work comes in. Um, most of my, my doctoral dissertation was tracking coral colonies that had bleached during a major bleaching event, worldwide bleaching event, in 1998, and um, looking at their associations with zoosanthellae, with different types of zoosanthellae, and seeing how these associations change over time. Um, Can you tell me briefly um, a little bit about some of the different types of symbiotic? Sure thing, sure thing. Well, for a, a long time we were basically, or the field basically thought that um, Zoosanthellae were all the same, that there was no difference between different um, zoosanthellae. And now, today, we know that this isn't the case at all, that there's actually very, very massive differences. And it was largely due to work um, by Bob Trench and Dr. Bob Trench and his um, graduate students and then postdocs and, and other colleagues that showed that, that this, this group, zoosanthellae, is actually extremely diverse. And so now we, um, we've got about 100, 150 different symbiont types that we've identified. Uh, we're not very creative, so we've named them by letters and numbers, so we call them things like A1, D1A, C3, B1, and we've sampled, or colleagues of mine and I have sampled all over the world now, and um, we have a sense that symbiodinium is actually extremely diverse. So that first prediction of the adaptive bleaching hypothesis has been um, held up, that there are many, many types of symbiodinium out there. I should definitely note that the adaptive bleaching hypothesis has been very controversial. Um, many corals that bleach do die, I mean, they're losing their primary energy source from the, the photosynthates from these zoosanthellae, and as a result, um, they either starve to death or they're more susceptible to a disease, or it, it's a major stress event for corals, and so it's been 
very controversial that this that, that actually may be some positive benefit for corals by potentially acquiring a new symbiont type. So how, how has your uh, most recent research uh, related to that? Well, so we track corals in the Florida Keys and the Bahamas um, for about five years following a bleaching event. And um, we had some data from corals prior to the bleaching event, so we had an idea of what they were, what types of symbionts they were harboring before this major bleaching event, and what types of symbionts they were harboring through it and then after it. And um, it looks like for many, many corals, that at least in our own work, there's no change at all in symbiont type. It, associations appear to be very stable between host and symbiont. Now there are a few very notable exceptions and there's this clade D symbiodinium or clade D zoxanthellae um, of which there's only a few specific kinds that uh, appear to be very temperature tolerant, very heat tolerant, very opportunistic and they do show up in um, a number of different coral species after bleaching. But in my own work we found that when we track corals for two or three or more years after the bleaching event, eventually corals seem to revert back to the symbiont type that they harbored prior to the event. So we had two, two basic patterns, either stability or no change through bleaching, or a change, but then a change that reverted back to the original type in the end. So can a coral have multiple symbionts at the same time? Absolutely. In fact, many corals likely, likely do. Although when we go out and sample on a, a particular reef, I would say upwards of 80% of corals only have one detectable symbiont type. So using our current um, genetic methods, we can sample down to about 5 to 10%, um, or, or I should say 90, about 95% of what's in the colony, and we get a sense that we only find one type. Now there may be many freeloaders hanging out there, different symbiont types at really, really low densities, You know, maybe just a few cells. And um, we're, our methods at this point aren't sophisticated enough to pull out those one or two really, really rare individual symbionts that might be, might be hanging out. Um, but in general, most corals harbor one type. Now, there's a few corals out there um, that harbor multiple types, sometimes uh, in different parts of the colony. The most famous example is probably this coral, Mon Montestrella, or the boulder star coral. And um, it has one symbiont type or one or two types in the sun-exposed tops of colonies and another symbiont type, um, a C type, found on the sides of colonies. So it's usually an A or a B on the top and a C on the side. Now that's a pretty rare case. Most corals, it's, it appears to be fairly homogenous throughout. Again, at the level we can detect things. That, Is that clear? Yeah, very, very clear. Great. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the uh, the biogeography of Symbiodinium? And I know you recently did a project on some uh, some cold tolerant. Sure, um, oh, I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, so as I mentioned, there's numerous types of Symbiodinium out there. Um, we're in, in up into the hundreds of different types at this point. And um, so, is there a big difference between the Atlantic? groupings in the Pacific groups? Absolutely. There's some really elegant work done by uh, Dr. Todd Lajeunesse, a colleague of ours, and he's shown that um, the assemblages of Symbiodinium from the Great Barrier Reef are very distinct from the assemblages um, in other parts of the Pacific, and, and particularly from the assemblages in the uh, Caribbean. It looks like there's just, just a few types, and we call them generalist types, because they tend to be found in multiple different hosts. And um, there's a few types that, of these generalist types that are in common between the Atlantic and the Pacific. 
um, we're talking about four or five total types, and then the remainder of that diversity, those hundreds and hundreds of samples, appear to be very unique to a particular um, biogeographic region. And so um, Ta, Dr. Lajeunesse, and I sampled Hawaii, and we found that the flora of Hawaii, or the symbidinium types of Hawaii, were uh, very distinct from those in the Caribbean, and also even from other places we've measured in, in the Pacific. Um, so it appears that there's a lot of diversification that's gone on with symbiodinium. So um, it, you know, some recent research you've done with uh, symbiodinium B2, I think That's it is. correct, yeah. Um. So um, again, we've been sampling all over the, um, the globe trying to get a picture of what symbiodinium looks like as in terms of its, its total range. And some of these symbionts have very huge ranges um, over, you know, thousands of miles. And one, one type that we, or one project that we did is we recently went out to um, the, these reefs on the coast of Georgia, and they're not coral reefs, they're sponge reefs, um, and it's a little shelf out on the Georgia coast known as Gray's Reef. And we went out, and there's symbiotic corals out there, and there's symbiotic, um, other symbiotic creatures out there, and we sampled everything we could find there that was harboring symbiodinium, brought it back into the lab, and tried to get a picture of what the symbiont types that it were, was harboring were, and we found everybody had B2, this B2 symbiodinium. And you don't find B2 in the Caribbean, um, or only in very, very rare cases. And so we also sampled up the Atlantic coast, and everywhere we sampled along the Atlantic coast, we found most of these symbiotic organisms were harboring this B2. So what, so, what kind of corals occur that far north in such cold waters? Well, on, on Gray's Reef we found um, Oculina, Astrangia and Phalangia, three, um, three different coral species, and um, all three had this B2 symbiodinium. And then we've also taken samples from Rhode Island and the Delaware Bay and um, other areas. Everywhere we've looked along the Atlantic East Coast, we found this B2 symbiodinium being the dominant symbiote type. So that led us to, to hypothesize, well, if it's existing in all these temperate regions where it gets pretty darn cold in the winter, this must be a really cold-tolerant symbiont. And we don't know very much about the physiology of all these different symbionts. Um, we know that, like, clay D, for instance, is very high temperature tolerant, um, but we don't know much about many of the others. And so we just happen to be able to get this B2 symbiodinium in culture, and we have a lot of other symbiodinium or zooxanthellae types in culture. And we compared them, um, how they performed when we cooled them down. So we cooled them down a little bit every day from um, 26 degrees Celsius all the way down to 10. And then we let them stay at 10 for a while, and then we slowly ramped them back up to 26. And we basically managed to kill everything except this B2. Um, they they kind of went into this sort of dormancy hibernation state at 10 degrees. They weren't They were minimally functional. But as soon as we brought the temperature back up, they ramped right back up and, so, and came right back to life. What do you mean by minimally functional? Um, so what we were measuring was how their, um, their photosystems functioned, how effectively they were able to take light and turn it into chemical energy that, they can, um, that either the host or the symbiont can use. And the, the, so we get sort of a percentage efficiency measure, and they're normally operating at about 65% or so. When we brought them down to 10, everybody dropped to 0% except this B2. It stayed at maybe five, 3 or 4 or 5% and just kind of hovered there, minimally functioning. And as soon as we brought the temperature back up, they came. their efficiencies went right back up to their um, pre-stress levels. Wow, that's, 
So it's kind of cool. We have a, a biogeography, and now we have a physiology that explains that biogeography. Wow, very nice. Thanks. Um, so, are there any uh, common misconceptions about zooxanthellae? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a bunch. I would say one of the biggest ones is that they're just purely slaves to their hosts. You know, we're multicellular organisms, and so are corals, and we tend to think that um, the corals must be the ones that are controlling the the symbiosis. Well, it's likely some kind of more of a, a trade-off between the two. If we compare um, symbiodinium to other protists that exist in, in hosts, and we don't know a lot about many of these systems, but the ones we know about, it doesn't look like the host can um, actively select which type of symbiont it, it harbors. It may be a competition issue between symbiont types. Um, there may be some, some molecular compatibility on both the part of the host and the, the symbiont. There's all these hypotheses out there to explain the, um, why a particular host harbors a particular symbiont type, but it's likely not just the host controlling things or just right. the coral. The, the symbiont plays a big role too, um, and that's often forgotten, even by, by fellow researchers, that tends to be, be forgotten. So you talk a lot about um, symbiodinium diversity, and you talk about um, thermal resistance as far as high temperature and low temperature, but are there yeah. any um, metabolic advantages to one type of clade over another? That's a great question. Um, and again, you know, we're still in our infancy in this field. There's a lot we don't know, but there does appear to be some trade-offs between harboring one symbiont type versus another. There was a, a paper published by um, Little et al. In, in Science Magazine about two years ago, and they showed that um, corals that harbor a D symbiont which is again remember is this very thermally tolerant symbiont that's predicted that's high temperature high temperature tolerant which so it's predicted to do very well in, in some of these climate change models that we um, think about that corals with this D temp D symbiont um, actually grow at a much lower rate than uh, corals with C symbionts so there may be a trade-off between thermal tolerance and growth rate if you harbor a thermal tolerant symbiont you can't grow very fast but you outperform um, corals at high, other corals at high temperature. If you harbor a less thermal tolerant symbiont, you can grow fast, but if, if there's a high temperature event, um, it's, you're gonna have more deleterious consequences or face more deleterious consequences. So that, that's kind of a really neat study and um, hopefully there'll be more work similar along those lines that can kind of tell us more about how different corals perform with different symbiont types because there's a lot of information we, we just don't know at this point. Um, well, I would say that the, uh, the aquaristic comp community is just now starting to become aware of the importance of symbiodinium and how variable it can be within corals. You know, mm -hmm. For a long time, we've just assumed, okay, there's an algae growing on our corals, we know they need light, mm -hmm. and that's pretty much it. But um, what kind of things do you think aquarists should begin to start thinking about when they're housing corals in their aquariums? Well, one thing that um, I was really surprised by in some of the work that we've done is that your aquarium is likely full of symbiodinium already, and it's probably full of several different kinds of symbiodinium. Now, what do you mean by full? Are you saying? I mean, there's symbiodinium or zooxanthellae uh, have a free living stage where they they can live just fine without a host out in the water column. And there is, your reef tank water is likely full of, of several different kinds of symbiodinium if you have, if you've introduced any um, symbiotic corals or uh, similar symbiotic organisms to your tank. 
And so anytime we put um, what we call aposymbiotic or, or hosts that don't have a symbiont into any of our, um, our tanks, they brown up very quickly. They acquire symbiodinium, and they don't always acquire the same symbiodinium. So you're likely you know, harboring a, a mixed community of these things without even being aware of it. So what types of aposymbiotic corals are you talking about? Um, well, one of the things that we've worked with is Astrangia quite a bit, that coral I talked about from um, the Atlantic East Coast. Now, it's my understanding that Astrangia and Oculina can occur either with or without symbionts? That's right, that's right. Um, they, they can do very well without symbionts, and they can also harbor symbionts. Right. Um, absolutely. So, uh, do you think there's any um, ramifications for corals being exposed to all these different uh, symbionts? You, you talked earlier about the stability of um, the host symbiont association. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if this answers your question directly, but the definitely the number one predictor of what type of symbiont we're going to find is the host identity. Right. There appears to be some coevolution between host and symbiont, and uh, we find a lot of hosts that are are have specialist symbionts, symbionts that are only found in that particular host genera. And so in many cases, that's going to be the case um, with your aquarium um, organisms, that they're going to harbor a specialist symbiont, and that's going to be a very stable relationship. Now, just as a novelty, can you tell me, um, I guess, a little bit about um, some fungus that were introduced to Jamaica? Yeah, yeah this is a great story. Um, so there were some researchers working in Jamaica that had some corals from the Pacific um, that they were keeping in, in aquaria. Uh, how long ago was this? Um, this was, I believe, during the 60s. Right. And um, they one day they decided they didn't want to keep these corals anymore and they basically dumped them out into the water on the reef and these fungid corals have persisted um, all the way up until the present day and there's actually a small little colony of them they don't seem to be spreading too far but there's a number of them out there and so recently uh, th these corals were sampled and we've sampled the same coral in the Pacific Ocean and we found that they still these corals were still harboring their same symbiont type that's only found in the in the Pacific otherwise. So that really reinforces how stable these relationships often are between hosts and symbiont. Um, and that doesn't bode very well for the adaptive bleaching hypothesis right. that I, I talked about before. Wow, that's definitely a, an earful for our listeners. Do you have um, any closing comments you'd like to add? Um, no, but I, I do appreciate you uh, taking the time to, to talk to me. All right. Well, thank you uh, very much for, Mar for your time. And um, that's it for this interview with uh, Dr. Dan Thornhill from the University of Georgia in Athens. Thanks. Well, that about wraps it up for this special edition of the Talking Reef podcast. I hope you found it informative, as I did. I learned uh, much along the way. Um, if you have any questions for me, please feel free to contact me via email at coralite at gmail.com. That's C-O-R-A-L-I-T-E at gmail.com. Be informed that the first part of this episode can be found uh, transcribed on my website. That's coralite.net. And the appropriate links will be visible on the front page. Um, and in about a month, there will be a um, small conference dedicated to symbiosis, which will feature a gathering of um, a large part of uh, this country's uh, major zooxanthellae and symbiosis researchers. And I will be attending and hope to um, perhaps get some 
recordings of the brief presentations that they'll be making and uh, perhaps include those in a future uh, follow-up episode to this uh, segment. Um, So thanks for listening, and I'm Jake Adams for the Talking Reef Podcast. Thanks, Jake. And that's going to about wrap up the show this week. Uh, Again, it's been a very busy week for me, so I wanted to make sure I brought that to you. Uh, Jake's going to be back with us in the future, I'm sure, bringing you more uh, advanced topics from uh, marine biology and such such things like that. Uh, So just to wrap it up, uh, just as the normal reminder, don't forget if you have any questions, introductions, or comments for the show, make sure you call the voicemail line. Uh, It's quick and easy. Just uh, pick up the phone, and the number is 586-486- Three three five seven, and call that in there. Leave your voicemail there, and we'll get that played on the air for you. Uh, the final comment is that, uh, as, as you noticed, Jake was has worked with me to bring some of these topics like this to the show for you. If you are a researcher or a just a hobbyist that kind of gets into the stuff like that and does some special work like that, and you want a medium to get your information brought out to the public. Uh, The Talking Reef podcast is an excellent way to do that, as we now have many hundreds of listeners that are checking out this show every single week. So uh, if you want to get any more information on that, just uh, send me an email, podcast at talkingreef.com. And that's going to wrap up this show for this week.